Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a professor or assistant professor, Levi Moran. He's at Emory University. And we're going to talk about um, evolution. Um, and I guess Levi is uh, looking at factors that, uh, that determine evolution, perhaps on a rapid or a slow scale. Uh, but I'll let him describe that. So, Levi, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Yeah, for sure. Thanks so much for having me, Richard. I appreciate it. Um, doing, doing as well as can be in these uh, pandemic times. Yeah. Well, tell me about your uh, research. What's the, what's the focus of it? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think probably, probably what I would say is sort of the main focus of, of my lab's work is um, the kind of, we diverge and, and look into sort of two questions that are somewhat related to one another, but um, our, our sort of primary driving focus is how, how and why did sex evolve and, and why is it maintained? So when we go out, we look at nature, lots of animals, lots of plants reproduce sexually. Why is that the case? Why, why not? Why don't we all clone, all clone ourselves? So that's, that's one thing that we look at. And really sort of the, the other uh, main driver um, for a lot of our questions is how do hosts and microbes interact? So um, how do um, hosts and their diseases evolve? And um, how do hosts and their, their beneficial microbes uh, interact and evolve? And interestingly, those, those two questions are fairly related. So this idea of why is there sex uh, ties in very closely with the idea of how do hosts and, and microbes interact and that we think that, that disease and potentially even um, beneficial microbiome, microbiome interactions could play a major role in how hosts um, evolve reproduction and, and why sex might be important. Well, if we're the host for our microbiome um, and the microbiome's host gets killed or the environment gets destroyed, that doesn't serve the microbiome. So I no, that think is- that they're in- intimately tied to our immunity and they're a, a large part of it. Absolutely. It is, it is a very bad thing uh, if, if you have taken up residence in a host to, to be harmful to that host. And um, one of the things that, that my lab's interested in looking in, and this is really just an area that, that we've kind of only begun to explore. And um, I think the field in general in evolutionary biology is, is sort of um, only recently begun to appreciate how important the microbiome is for, for their host and for, for the microbes themselves. And so one of the things that, that we've been interested in is sort of how do hosts establish interactions with beneficial microbes? And from an evolutionary standpoint, what does that look like? So does the host kind of dictate the way evolution proceeds when you have a host interacting with a beneficial microbe? Or is it, is it really sort of a give and take situation? Or is the, is the microbe um, sort of evolving freely and the host evolving freely and uh, and you sort of get convergence um, within that. And so really the one of the main things that my lab does that I think makes us um, 
a little bit different in this respect is that um, we use experimental evolution to test our hypotheses. And so what that, what that means in our lab is um, at any given moment, in, including here today, we actually have populations that are evolving in the lab. And so we are constantly sort of testing hypotheses and, and watching where evolution is going by actually doing uh, evolution experiments in real time in the laboratory. Well, what's an example of an evolution experiment? Yeah, yeah, so that's a great question. So, um, you know, one of the things, one of the things that, that we've been interested in is how antagonistic interactions uh, between hosts and microbes can influence the the evolution of sex. And so, um, we're interested in how we in our lab a lot of the time our host are these microscopic nematodes um, called C. elegans. And so we take our, our microscopic uh, C. elegans and we actually evolve them in the presence of bacteria that are deadly to, to, those, to those worms. And, and what we've done is ask questions about sort of does the ability of the, um, of the host population or the worm population depend on how frequently they have sex? So if they clonally reproduce, or in the case of my worms, they actually self-fertilize, but it's pretty close to clonal reproduction. So if my worms are continually self-fertilizing, um, one of the hypotheses that we've tested is if, if you continually self-fertilize, do you have trouble adapting to pathogens and parasites in your environment? And one of, one of the you know, sort of primary findings thus far in our lab is that if those worms are only self-fertilizing, we actually don't see them adapt to even some of the nastiest bacteria that we can put in their environment. And these are bacteria that are, that are just killing them um, very rapidly and imposing very strong natural selection. And we really just don't see much of a response at all from populations that, that only self-fertilize. Then conversely, when we um, have worm populations that can have sex, and we can actually genetically manipulate them to sort of only have sex or only self-fertilize. And when they only have sex, we actually see them adapt very rapidly to, to these nasty pathogens. And as a result of that, the mortality rate in these populations just drops incredibly rapidly. And so this is something we can actually see in the lab. We put these worms with the bacteria and um, over the course of you know, several months, we can actually see them evolve to um, be far less susceptible to these bacteria. You know, it might be interesting. Um, well, first of all, question, under what conditions do they um, sexually reproduce and under what conditions do they, I forget what you call it, you know, self-fertilize? Self-fertilize, good. Yeah, that, that's an excellent question. So um, the the worms that we have in my lab are a little bit strange um, in, in terms of their mating system. So generally in these populations, what we have, um, if you went out in nature, you found these worms, 99.9% of the, the worms that you're going to find are going to be self-fertile hermaphrodites. So these are individuals, they produce their own sperm, they produce their own egg, they can fertilize themselves, they can be both mom and dad um, to, their, to their babies. The other fraction of a percent of individuals that, that are out there are males. And it is only males that can mate with hermaphrodites that sort of facilitate the mixing of genes between individuals. So basically what we think about like sex. And so if males are present in a population, then there's likely going to be sexual reproduction and the genome is essentially going to, 
going to get mixed up. And so it's really so much of it is kind of kind of based on um, the presence or the absence um, of males. And we found a few environmental conditions that seem to uh, sort of uh, favor the presence of males. Things like high heat or high stress environments tend to um, sort of set the stage for for more males being present and actually sort of unlock some genetic features in the worm that allow for the production of males spontaneously. Is there a, uh, a choice by the hermaphrodites on whether to, um, you know, self-reproduce or engage with a male? Can you tell what's going on? Is there signaling between the two that says, is there like an evaluation? Hmm, okay, there's a male nearby, um, but they're not up to snuff for some reason, so I'm going to self-reproduce. That's a that's a really great question. So I would say that I I am far from an expert in this area, and there actually are labs that that look at this much close much more closely than I do. But to sort of summarize what's been found there, interestingly, it appears as though um, this species that I work with, C. elegans, has evolved from a purely male female um, ancestor. And so if we go back in time quite a bit, so thousands, millions of years, um, there was once, this, this was once a male-female um, species, and then as it evolved, um, at some point, the females actually evolved the abil- ability to produce some of their own sperm, and so they became um, self-fertile. And so, um, presumably, initially in this interaction, the, the females, or as they, you know, very recently became um, hermaphrodites, presumably they were very receptive to mating with the males because it was for a long time the only way reproduction happened. But if we assess the populations today, it actually would appear that hermaphrodites um, hermaphrodites have evolved in ways that make it easier for them to avoid mating with males. And so um, based on sort of what we know the situation was like in their evolutionary past and what we see with them today, um, it would appear that they're actually evolving to be better at avoiding males and and avoiding that mating. However, there are a few situations that we found in our lab that seem to make them more receptive to to mating. And um, one of those is that the, the worms under very stressful conditions will enter this very particular developmental phase called, called dower. And dower basically allows them to persist in really extreme temperatures, um, really dry periods, uh, even over winter, um, potentially in this dower phase. What we find is that when hermaphrodites come out of that dower phase, um, they seem far more receptive to mating with males than, than at any other time. And so it's possible that the conditions dictate how receptive, how receptive uh, hermaphrodites are to mating, but by and large, um, they are often trying to avoid mating with males, interestingly. Um, you know, it'll be a really interesting experiment is if you expose the hermaphrodites to pathogens and they survive and then put them in the presence of males and see if there's more of a propensity for them to mate with the males or if there's just the same likelihood for them to self-reproduce. I, I fully agree. I think that I think that's a super interesting experiment. Um, I will I will say we, we beat you to it um, a little bit and then uh, I have a, a former uh, postdoc who's been working on this problem and uh, with some of the work that, that he actually did as, as, as part of his grad, uh, grad work, he, um, well, I should, I'll take a step back real quick. And I will say that what, what we found is that if we have populations that have very low frequencies of males 
and we expose them to pathogens, parasites, what we generally will find is that the male frequencies increase very rapidly. And we had several hypotheses for, for why this could be the case. Um, one hypothesis was exactly as you stated, uh, sort of a um, kind of a, a facultative signal that they should have sex. And so we did this test where we infected hermaphrodites and then assessed whether that made them more receptive to mating. Um, interestingly, we, we didn't find much of a signal at all there. I think um, the exposure, exposure to, to the pathogen didn't seem to have, have a major role. Instead, what we found is that the offspring of hermaphrodites that were the product of sexual reproduction fared much better than the offspring of hermaphrodites that were the product of self-fertilization. So it seemed that there was something in sort of the new genetic combinations that were being made through sexual reproduction that, that was really giving them their edge. However, I wanna qualify all of that by saying that we've only tested that with one single pathogenic microbe. And it's very possible that if we went out into nature and found you know, many different microbes that these worms encounter on a more regular basis, that your hypothesis could absolutely be correct. And so this is something that we definitely need to test in more detail. Well, what's the typical frequency? Um, so hermaphrodite uh, self-reproduces, what's the distribution of males and hermaphrodites versus sexual reproduction, males versus hermaphrodites? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, it actually depends on the natural isolate of worm that you're working with here. So we have some worm populations where we've pulled, we've pulled individuals from nature and we bring those worms into the lab and the hermaphrodites, by and large, regardless of which natural isolate we're dealing with, they will sort of spontaneously throw off males at about one in 10,000 um, offspring. It's very, very rare. And this is pretty constant across all different strains that we isolate from nature. But what's not constant is that once a male has been spontaneously produced, some strains or populations of worms produce better males than others. So um, there's one particular strain, it happens to be from Hawaii, so we call it the Hawaiian strain. Um, the Hawaiian strain males are very good at mating. And once those males have sort of established themselves in the population, they can be maintained at frequencies somewhere between about five and 15% in, in most populations. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Whereas other strains of C. elegans that we would find in nature, we might pull, we might pull them out, out in the lab. They will throw off a few males and very quickly the male frequency will be less than 1% and really maintained at 1% for a very long time. And, and we see sort of everything in between with different strains. So some, some strains are decent at having males, some strains their males are just not very competitive. They tend to not stick around. And it's really sort of um, right. anything in between. Well, so there's a hundredfold difference, which is a lot. And then the it strains that you work with, uh, do you think it would be better for experimentation to work with the ones that are the one percenters or the you know, 0.001 percenters? That's a great question. Uh, so I would say in, in our case, um, when we're interested in sort of studying the benefits of sex, 
it is really nice to work with the Hawaiian strain, which is the outlier and has very good males because it gives us sort of a, a picture of when males are, when males are actually competent and, uh, and things are working well there, what that can look like. Um, on the other hand, I am really interested in what a genome looks like when self-fertilization has, has been the sort of the predominant, predominant mode of reproduction for a long time. And some of these other strains can be really interesting to get a sense for what are the evolutionary and, and genomic consequences for a lot of self-fertilization for, for a very long time. And so um, it really kind of depends on the hypothesis you're trying to test. The, the one sort of major exception to all of that is that um, there is sort of one particular strain of C. elegans that's kind of like the, the vanilla strain of C. elegans. Like every lab uses this strain. All of the molecular tools, all of the genetic tools are developed for this one particular strain. And that strain just happens to be one of the worst at keeping males around. And so pretty much without fail, every lab that works on C. elegans is gonna deal with that on, on some level. What makes it funny is that there are some C. elegans labs out there that because they only work with this one strain, um, they never work with males in the lab. Whereas my lab, I think we're, we're pretty much constantly on the search for males and, and strains that are good with males. So the frequency doesn't appear to change in response to uh, exposure to a pathogen, you know, either the one in 10,000 or the one in 100 male producers? Have you tested both? Um, so actually in this, in this experiment, we did not. And that's, that's a very, that's a very good point. Um, so we were specifically looking at populations that we had directly evolved, um, with this pathogen and looked to see if there was an evolved response to that pathogen. And in this case, we were, we were working with the Hawaiian strain or the, or the very high male strain. And so it's, I think, I think you're totally hitting on, on all the right things here in the sense that, you know, if, if any strain is, is likely to have sort of a facultative response or a, an induced response to, to interacting with pathogens, it's almost certainly the ones that carry almost no males whatsoever. And so, um, yeah, you you may well be onto something there. That that would be something that uh, would be fun to try. I may uh, once once we once we get undergraduates back in the lab here, that that may be a good uh, thesis project for one. Yeah. What about um? So when you expose the worms to pathogens, uh, do you have mixed populations, males and hermaphrodites, or you know, have you tried exposing only a population of males if it even exists in nature, mm-hmm. and then only a population of hermaphrodites to see if there's different. Uh, you know, responses to the pathogens. Yeah. Um, so in, in the case of C. elegans, uh, males can only fertilize hermaphrodites to reproduce. So if you have a population of all males, it will only last for one generation because those guys can't reproduce by themselves. The- oh, no, no, no. I mean, I mean, um, I guess, you know, I'm anthropomorphizing, but fine. Oh, yeah. Um, if, if you have a population of only males and you expose them to a certain pathogen, Oh, gotcha. Uh, do they some for, for some reason? Do they survive better or worse? Uh, do they yeah, adapt that, more or less? Same thing. Gotcha. Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah, yeah. That's that's uh, that's interesting. So we we tend to see we've we have only worked with a handful of pathogens in my lab, and so I I'm hesitant to generalize too much. But I'll say that some work from other labs um, definitely backs up our findings here, and that is that when when we expose the worms to to pathogens, we tend to see that males um, males will often suffer the sort of the greatest brunt of it, and it's it's unclear right now to me if 
the reason that the males tend to take the brunt of it and generally exhibit higher mortality rates, um, it's unclear if that's due to some sort of immune function uh, deficiency relative to, to the hermaphrodites. Or one, one thing that we often see with males in populations in the lab is that they move around a ton. They move so much more than hermaphrodites. And presumably this is so they can be moving around trying to find a mate. But I think in the, in the case of our, our lab populations, when we're exposing them to pathogens, um, I think what it does is it actually increases their exposure to the pathogen simply because they're just moving around more instead of just, you know, sort of sitting in, in one place. And so um, we haven't really been able to, to test that hypothesis yet, but um, I will say, you know, males and C. elegans are, uh, they're, they're kind of fickle beasts and uh, it's, it's pretty easy to throw them off or, or to mess them up. And so I think the hermaphrodites are, are really the hardy ones. Um, Nonetheless, the hermaphrodites do suffer um, quite a bit from, from the parasites we use as well. And more than anything, that's by design, because what we're trying to do is sort of poke the population, hit them with sort of the strongest selection we can so that uh, we can observe those responses um, into natural selection in the laboratory. And obviously, the stronger selection we impose, the faster we can see that evolutionary change. And uh, given that I'm you know, working with grad students, uh, working with postdocs in my laboratory, most of them want to graduate, and uh, we want to want to help speed the evolutionary process along as as much as possible. Um, what about the uh, the microbiome of C. elegans itself? There probably is one. Is you that, are correct. Uh, looked at, or you know, and does it so, differ between males and hermaphrodites, etc.? You know, that the question of the difference between males and hermaphrodites is fascinating. I don't believe anyone has looked at that yet, um, partially because isolating males from nature is not easily done. And, and I think few people have, have done that successfully. In terms of C. elegans microbiome, I would, I would say that work on the C. elegans natural microbiome has only recently you know, really exploded. And there was a, a real nice paper um, by Buck Samuel um, in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science just a couple of years ago that really, for the first time, started describing some of these strains that are um, that are present in in at least some populations of C. elegans and, and in their in their microbiome. Um, very recently, there there's a sort of a nice toolkit that came out where C. elegans re researchers can order a natural C. elegans microbiome. And uh, you can actually sort of get multiple strains shipped to your lab so that you can have you know, sort of some semblance of, of what a natural community uh, of the worms might look like. And one of, one of my collaborators here at Emory University, uh, Dr. Nick Vega, um, they are, are really interested in sort of what composes the C. elegans microbiome. And beyond that, what are sort of the ecological and evolutionary dynamics that determine um, which species get to be in that microbiome and sort of the, the nature of the host's interaction with that microbiome. And so I think it's really a field that's exploding quickly. And sort of as the, the whole field of microbiome biology expands, I think C. elegans is sort of positioned on the cutting edge there to, to help us really learn a lot about what's going on. Well, it may be a confounding factor if you're looking at the response of, you know, a certain strain of C. elegans to pathogens, but yet they have a different microbiome. Like, you know, if you get one out of the wild, it's been in your lab for a day, its microbiome is probably transitioning from wild to lab. And if it's been there for two weeks, 
they even live that long. <laughs> its microbiome may change dramatically. Um, you, so that may be a big factor. You, know? you, you are 100% on target with that. And, you know, as, as an experimental evolutionist, the last thing that I would ever say is that what I see in my lab is what happens in nature. Um, I sort of see experimental evolution along a continuum where at one end of that continuum, you have what actually happens in nature. The other end of the continuum, you have sort of pure evolutionary theory. I think my work as, as an experimental evolutionist exists somewhere in between those, those two extremes. And, and part of what I love about experimental evolution is that I can control any variable that I want to control, essentially. And so we can really set up experiments where we directly test you know, one or a couple of variables to see how these things play out. But certainly in the case of, of this microbiome, um, there is no doubt, you know, we get these worms out of nature, we bring them in. They, if, if they're in the lab long enough, no doubt they're adapting to lab conditions. They're experiencing di different food source, um, all kinds of different living conditions than they normally would in nature. And so one thing that I think would be really cool to do with, with our system going forward is to really start plugging, plugging into more natural conditions and, and kind of moving in that direction um, a bit more. I will say it's, it's a challenge and um, I think one that will sort of take baby steps to sort of move towards more natural populations. But I'm excited to see where that goes. And I, and I do think you're right in that sort of incorporating more of the natural, natural microbiome in what we do could give us, you know, much more, more accurate uh, sense of what's going on. And the funny thing that I, I call this the dirty little secret in my lab, and that is that in my lab, um, We've done all these experiments where we find that that males are males and then uh, sex as a result of males being around is really important, is really useful for adaptation and sort of prolonging these populations going forward. And the funny thing with that is that when we go into natural populations of C. elegans, males and sex are almost non-existent. And so clearly there's a massive disconnect between what I see in the lab and and what's going on in nature. And so I think moving in that direction is is absolutely key and, and something that we'll we'll try to do going forward. Is there a lot of uh, epigenetic heritability? You know, you expose uh, a hermaphrodite to something and then you, you know, it breeds with itself X number of times and um, you know, the subsequent generations still have that protective ability that was evolved or maybe even that that cellular memory that this pathogen's bad and they avoid it faster or more. There, yes, there, you are 100% on point there. There, there is, um, there's a lot of evidence of, of maternal effects and, um, and epigenetic modifications in the worm. And we have a, a few tricks of the trade uh, of sort of being able to work around that to some degree. Um, some of the, some of the coolest work that I've seen, uh, sort of coming out here recently with C. elegans, uh, this is, um, some experimental evolution work where they have sort of evolved the worms in different conditions to sort of create evolved epigenetic responses and uh, evolved maternal effects. And um, what, what these researchers can do is sort of uh, select on the worms to generate these maternal effect responses. And then, you know, Many, many generations later come back and test those worms to see if they have evolved the ability to sort of produce maternal effects, if that makes sense. So they're not actually selecting for 
the maternal effect itself, but selecting for the sort of uh, establishment of a maternal effect. And I think that's, uh, that's been some, some really cool stuff. And, it, and in terms of the work that I do, I always have to be careful uh, of what kind of maternal effects my, my worms might be carrying. Um, probably the, one of the easier ways to deal with this and one of the things that makes worms unique is you can actually freeze them and they, they survive in the freezer. So I, I have worm populations that are frozen uh, in my lab that are 20 years old. And um, what you can do then is, is freeze them and then sort of have them out in the laboratory, allow them to acclimate to the laboratory for many generations before you, you actually test them for whatever phenotype you're looking for. And uh, I found that to be fairly effective. It may not be 100%, but fairly effective. Well, when the, um, I don't know if you cover this, but when the worms uh, adapt to a pathogen, how do they adapt? Is it just gene regulation, you know, epigenetic marks that are doing it? Um, does the underlying DNA of the worms actually change? I mean, what, uh, what appears to be the mechanisms by which they survive pathogens? Yeah. Um, so this, this definitely is something that, that we have explored in the past and something that, that we are currently exploring. Um, so I will say what, one of the first responses we generally see in, in our worms, we, we start exposing them to, to pathogen. And the way that we set up our experiments is that uh, they, they essentially get exposed, um, they get exposed to a bacterial pathogen that is localized to certain locations on their petri dish and um what this what this does is kind of to some degree mimic a natural environment where they might be encountering some food sources in the wild that are that are good food sources nutritious food sources and some food sources that are pathogenic and so on this petri dish there's there's e coli which is uh, sort of their normal lab food source and is not pathogenic by and large. Um, and then, and then we, uh, use serratia marcescens is, is the bacterial pathogen we generally use. And so there's sort of a, um, on our plate, uh, sort of geographically distributed, uh, serratia and, and E. coli. And so actually one of the first responses that we see from our worms is that they, um, evolve a very strong avoidance response towards their bacterial pathogen. They, evolve the ability to recognize that pathogen very quickly within, within about 10 generations. Uh, they often will evolve the ability to recognize it and avoid it and, and go to, to their other food source. The interesting thing is that if we allow that bacteria to co-evolve um, with the hosts and by co-evolve, we only allow the bacteria to get passage from generation to generation if it kills a worm and we'll actually extract it from dead worms and move it along. And one of the things that we see is that when we allow that, that bacterial pathogen to co-evolve is that whatever signal it was giving off before that the worms can recognize and avoid upon co-evolution, that bacteria stops producing that signal. And we have some, we have some hints, we have some clues as to what that signal might be. Um, and we're sort of currently going in and, and, and working to, to figure that out. On the host so side, what, what do you mean the, the bacteria becomes more deadly or less deadly to the worms? Um, so over time, it, it will often, I would say it, it rarely becomes more deadly only because we start out with it being very deadly. Um, but it will often sort of maintain its, its level of deadliness um, or decline slightly. Um, but it often, it often stays um, in a place where 
it is inducing very high mortality rates unless the worms have started to evolve some sort of immune response um, against it. And, and so we tend to see this avoidance response occur first. And then after that avoidance response um, sort of is no longer a fruitful avenue, we tend to see that give way uh, to some sort of immune response um, some sort of immune response evolution. And that's something that we're working on right now, sort of digging down uh, into the genome and trying to figure out which genes are under selection and, and sort of what is, what is pushing that. And uh, we've, we've made some progress that way. We can tell you the chromosome. Uh, we can't yet figure out specifically which genes um, on that chromosome uh, are really underlying the host change. Uh, another thing that's probably, you know, I know it's too complex, but do you uh, look for like extracellular vesicles put out by the worms and by the bacteria too, you know, plasmids, and do they appear to enter into one another and interact at all? Or even in male hermaphrodite interactions, you know, is anyone looking at EVs being passed? So in the, in the case of the, the male hermaphrodite interactions, without a doubt, there are um, pheromones that are, that are being released by, by the worms. And so um, these worms don't, have eyes, they, they can't see each other. And so males are tracking hermaphrodite pheromone on some level to, to be able to find mates. One of the ways that we're seeing uh, the hermaphrodites evolve to um, be less receptive to mating from males is that we're actually seeing the evolution of, of reduced pheromone production. And so they're essentially trying to sort of blind males um, to their presence as, as best as possible. Um, as far as the bacteria go, uh, certainly um, there's a potential for, for plasmid exchange. Um, one, of the, one of the things that we think is happening with the hosts avoiding the bacteria is that our um, Serratia marcescens bacterial pathogen produces a, a chemical that um, is called serawetin. And um, the serawetin uh, compound, it's, it seems to be sort of involved in the motility of the bacteria, sort of allowing the bacteria to spread. And um, from work that other labs have done, it appears that this avoidance behavior that can be exhibited by the worms is, is predicated on the ability to detect this serawetin in the environment and, and basically avoid it. And so we think it's possible that, that as our bacterial pathogens are evolving, um, they may be altering their production of serawetin in, in some way to make them less recognizable to, to the worms. But that's something we're really, we haven't, we haven't dug too far into, but I, I'd be curious to go in that direction. Well, you know what you could try too is um, find a pathogen that targets the uh, microbiome of the worms instead of the worms themselves, and then let it attack and see uh, you know if the worms genetics change at all. If the worms immune system is activated. Super cool idea. Um, I will say one of one of my good friends and collaborators has done has done something very similar. Um, her name's Kayla King, and uh, she's a, a professor at the University of Oxford in the UK. She has some really cool work showing that um, if, you, if you feed the worms this very slightly um, pathogenic enterococcus species, um, once it gets into the worm gut, if after that slightly pathogenic species is in the worm gut, you feed it a, a really nasty um, pathogen, in this case, staph. Um, when the staph is, is fed to the worms, when it, this other bacteria is already present in the gut, um, 
the enterococcus or the slightly pathogenic bacteria will actually evolve to sort of begin to combat that um, that staph infection or, the, or that uh, really nasty pathogen that is in the worm gut. And so essentially what she and her team have found is that if you sort of have some sort of a microbiome present with the hosts, that that microbiome can kind of work in coordination with the host to help fight off some really nasty pathogens that, that would normally gain access through the gut. And uh, it's, it's, it's some very cool stuff that, that they're working on. Is the follow-up pathogen though, so the first one, the very slightly uh, pathogenic, it affects specifically the, the gut bacteria, the worm, or the worm itself? And then what is the follow-up pathogen effect? Yeah, uh, good, good question. So both of them will affect the worm itself if they are the only thing that's in there. And so um, generally the way that this experiment works is you you feed, well, so I, I should also say that the, the highly pathogenic one, if you feed it to the worm, um, without the presence of, of any other bacteria, it is, is very deadly for the worm and it causes a high mortality rate. Um, and so it's really, what, what's interesting is that um, you feed either one of those to, to the worm um, independently and they are slightly, one is slightly pathogenic, one is very pathogenic. But when you feed them collectively to the worm, just, just those two in there, that slightly pathogenic one counteracts not all, but most of, of the, um, the highly pathogenic effects of, of the staph bacteria. And so essentially what you get is this sort of bacterial combat in the host gut that really is able to uh, result in the host having greater fitness or um, you know, less, less harm due to, to infection. So what are some of your, you know, so far I know the research isn't done by any means, but what are some <laughs> of your early conclusions like, you know, the sex vital, and that's why it's, it's almost omnipresent in the world. You know, it's, a, it's a variation in defense of the host. Yeah, so I would say um, one of one of our one of our most um, sort of our most impactful or driving um, conclusions so far is that sex is very very important uh, when you have a co-evolving pathogen. Um, in the absence of sex, co-evolving pathogens in, in our experiments have been able to drive our host populations extinct. So they have adapted to those hosts very rapidly, and they infect them at such rates that we actually see the whole population go extinct. On the other hand, if the hosts are allowed to have sex and uh, essentially can, under sex, mount a response to defend against those co-evolving pathogens, we see that um, the populations are maintained and they are generally maintained at, at relatively high population sizes. And so a lot, of, a lot of the work that we've been doing recently has been getting at sort of why, why are co-evolving pathogens specifically uh, sort of this factor that seem to, to be able to select for sex. And um, we think a lot of it has to do with this idea that Co-evolving pathogens are sort of creating this ever-changing environment. Co-evolving pathogens are sort of always readapting to the host population and kind of it's almost like the host population is consistently experiencing a novel environment as a result of those co-evolving um, pathogens. And we recently just finished an experiment where we said, okay, well, if, if co-evolving parasites are, are kind of like a novel environment, what if we just expose worms consistently to novel environments? Um, we'll, we will uh, we'll still stick with pathogens, but we'll just change 
the species or the genotype of the pathogen every, every so many generations, we'll see if change is the thing that really does it. And the interesting thing with that experiment is that um, we found that changing the environment, it does work for a time to favor sex. There's, there's a short period of evolutionary time where sex is favored under those conditions, but it, it can't maintain sex the way that co-evolving parasites can. Co-evolving parasites seem to select for sex and keep it at high levels throughout the course of our experiments. But the changing environment, um, it just didn't, didn't quite maintain it um, throughout the whole experiment. And so we think there's some element of co-evolving parasites' ability to sort of track the population and sort of always be one step, sort of one co-evolutionary step behind their hosts in, in that adaptive process that sort of continually pushes sex along. And um, that's something that we'll, we'll continue to look at. I, I think the co-evolutionary dynamics of hosts and their, um, their diseases is fascinating. And, and our system is sort of primed for looking at that more. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Levi, what, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Um, yeah. So you are welcome to, uh, to head over to our, our website. Um, I, uh, I do my best to, to sort of keep our, uh, our list of publications updated, but more than anything, uh, our website is also uh, a place where you can learn about the members in my lab. I think I have awesome lab members and uh, we post pretty frequently on, you know, the, the different folks in the lab and, and the projects that they're working on. Um, I have smart people in my lab. They do uh, cool things. They have good ideas. So I recommend checking out the lab website and um, obviously you're, you're welcome to read any of our papers. Excellent. Levi, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.